Good afternoon, everyone. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here on our home campus. And I just feel like I've got my, my extended family uh, here in the room. I have to tell you that, you know, when I, I moved to Berkeley in 2002, I was recruited here from, from Yale University by some of the distinguished people in this room, actually. And um, I knew I was moving to an exciting place. I'd been very happy at Yale, but I knew this was uh, sort of opening the door to a lot of new, exciting opportunities in research. What I didn't think about at the time, but I've come to appreciate, especially in recent years, and you'll see in this lecture, is that our great university is much more than uh, you know, any individual department. So I'm fortunate to work in two great departments here, but there are so many uh, ways that this university has now contributed to my thinking about the future of genome editing, where it's going in a societal sense, a legal sense, and an ethical and moral sense, in addition to all of the opportunities in clinical medicine, agriculture, et cetera. So I feel like I am so lucky to be at a place that has been fostering my intellectual growth in all of those different realms. And I think this lectureship in honor of Dr. Elberg certainly um, is very fitting in, in the sense that he is, a, is someone who has inspired many of us reading about his life and his work here at Berkeley uh, is just sort of, to me, epitomizes why Berkeley is such a great place to, to have the opportunity to work and, and, and work with such great students. So that's my little, little uh, tribute to Berkeley. And um, what I want to do today is I'm going to tell you a, a story, really, about some research that started here at Berkeley with uh, just a collaboration among colleagues and then uh, an international partnership with Emmanuel Charpentier that led in an unexpected direction. And it produced some science that has profound implications going forward in different areas of, uh, of course, in, in medicine and agriculture, but also makes us really think about what it means to be human and what it means to have the power to manipulate the very code of life. And I want to get into some of that today with you, and, and I'll, I'll talk for, hoping to talk for about 40 minutes, and then I want to save a generous amount of time for discussion at the end. So... Um, to get into this, I wanted to introduce the, the topic of genome editing by pointing out that a lot of times in science, and this is something I love about being a scientist, we do experiments in the lab because we have an idea about something, we have something we want to test, and the result isn't something you could have predicted. It takes your work in an unexpected direction. And that was exactly the case for the work that led to the CRISPR-Cas9 method for genome editing, because this was a project that began as a curiosity-driven experiment to understand how bacteria fight viral infection, something that might sound rather esoteric to folks in the room, and yes, it is um, in many ways, but it was something that I was curious about. And, um, and through that research that, that we did in partnership with various colleagues, this led to a, an understanding of this bacterial immune system that allowed it to be adapted as something very different, namely a tool for manipulating the DNA sequences in any type of cell or organism. And this really started with a, a conversation that I had with a colleague here at Berkeley, Jillian Banfield. And, you know, this is one of the great things about Cal. You know, Jill called me one day, I was probably around 2006 or so, and she said, uh, Jennifer, I don't really know you, we don't really know each other, but 
um, you're doing the type of research that I think could be very interesting for something that I've stumbled across in my own work. And she proceeded to explain to me that uh, she studied the DNA isolated from different kinds of bacteria and the viruses that infect those bugs in the environment. And she'd come across something very mysterious that was intriguing, and that was the fact that many bacteria in their chromosomes, so this is a diagram that illustrates the circular chromosome of a typical bacterial cell, many bacteria have a sequence of DNA in the chromosome that is a storage site for sequences of uh, DNA sequences that come from viruses that infect those cells. And these, these DNA sequences have a distinctive pattern of repetitive elements that flank unique bits of DNA that are stored from viruses, and they were called CRISPRs. So when you see the acronym CRISPR, even if you don't know uh, the, what it actually stands for, now you know that it, it really represents, it, it's a, an acronym that is describing this repetitive DNA element that is a genetic vaccination card for bacteria where they store records of past infection. And what Jill wondered was whether these sequences might in fact be a signature of a bacterial immune system, a way bacteria could prevent future infection by those viruses. And one clue to this was that many of these organisms, in addition to having these repetitive CRISPR sequences, they also had CRISPR-associated genes that encoded proteins of unknown function at the time that were nonetheless always inherited with CRISPR arrays. And so it had the look of some kind of a conserved system that might have evolved over time to do something uh, very specific. And what we now know, and this is really based on work that was done initially by scientists working in the dairy industry who are studying the kinds of bacteria that are used to culture yogurt and, and to make cheese, is that in bugs that have a CRISPR system, they in fact can adapt to viruses and protect themselves from future infection. And here's how it works. So this is a cartoon of a bacterial cell and if that lucky cell has a CRISPR system in the genome, then when it gets infected by a virus which injects its DNA into the cell and starts to make all of the molecules that are necessary to make more viruses, this cell can in fact acquire a little sequence of DNA from the virus and store it in the CRISPR array in the genome. And then the cell makes a little copy of that CRISPR array in the form of a molecule called RNA. It's a genetic cousin of DNA, so it provides the zip code for this system to recognize viruses that might have a matching uh, DNA sequence. And those RNA molecules combine with proteins encoded by the Cas genes to form surveillance complexes that utilize the RNA sequence, the letters in the RNA, to find matching sites in DNA molecules, and when those matches are found, then the Cas proteins are able to cut up that foreign DNA and get rid of it. So it's a great way for bugs to adapt to viral infection. And, um, and the amazing thing about these pathways is that Jill Banfield's work and others who were working in this field, very small field at the time, we're in fact uncovering many different examples of these CRISPR pathways. It's not one immune system, but in fact many. And I wanted to show you this great picture uh, from Jill's lab. So th these are two members of, of Jill's lab, uh, inclu including Christine He, who is a joint uh, postdoc between our labs. 
And what these lucky uh, lab members get to do in their work is go out on field trips like this, and they collect samples of groundwater, samples of soil, um, and they are able to filter those samples and isolate the bacteria that might be growing in those environments. And then the DNA from those bugs is sequenced and used to look for new examples of CRISPR systems as well as lots of other kinds of interesting pathways that these bugs might be using. So it's a field that's known as metagenomics. And it's really interesting because we often don't even know what these bugs are. They've never been identified by scientists or cultured in a laboratory. And nonetheless, by doing this kind of metagenomic research, you can get a lot of information about the lifestyles of these organisms. And so this kind of work has uncovered many different flavors of CRISPR-Cas immune systems. And I'm showing you here a slide that just uh, illustrates in, in cartoon fashion the collection of different kinds of CRISPR-Cas enzymes and proteins that are part of these pathways. And I would just want you to notice that overall we can divide these systems into two categories known as class one and class two. And the thing that really distinguishes them is the fact that the class one systems consist and require multiple proteins that provide protection from viruses, whereas the class two systems each consist of a single large gene that encodes a big protein that's responsible for protecting cells. So rather than requiring a whole set of proteins, one protein does everything to protect the cell. Um, and so it was really that, um, you know, that sort of thinking about this difference in these types of CRISPR systems in nature that led to a partnership that I established with Emmanuel Charpentier's lab back in 2011 to investigate the function of a particular gene, a gene encoding a protein known as Cas9. And we were both at a conference together. We you know, were scientists who came from different parts of the world. And we were, our science had, you know, we were coming from very, very different scientific backgrounds. But when we met at a conference, we realized that we were both interested in the same question. What is the function of this Cas9 protein? It seemed like a fascinating, must be an, a, a really interesting protein if it could provide this kind of programmable protection against viruses. And that embarked my lab and Emmanuel's lab on a wonderful collaboration to answer this question. And two scientists working with us, Martin Jinek, a postdoc here at Berkeley in my lab at the time, and Christoph Chylinski in Emmanuel's lab working in Vienna at the time, figured out that Cas9 is an amazing enzyme that has the ability to recognize segments of DNA at sites that match a 20-letter sequence in the guide RNA. And remember that this is a, would be an RNA molecule coming from and derived from integrated pieces of DNA in the CRISPR locus that record a past viral infection. So by definition, these RNAs are able to recognize matching DNAs that come from those viruses. And so in this um, cartoon right here. I hope you can see that. Maybe you can see the laser pointer. Uh, this this uh, piece of RNA provides the address for DNA recognition, and when the protein, which is shown in blue, recognizes that segment of DNA, it's able to unwind the DNA duplex, and then two chemical centers in the protein generate a double-stranded break in the DNA. And that's really how it works. So in bacteria, when that break is generated, the bacterial cell is able to quickly then degrade those ends of the DNA 
And if that's a piece of viral DNA, then it, uh, the virus goes away. And importantly, by doing these biochemical experiments where we had purified the Cas9 protein and we're figuring out what were the essential components for this RNA-guided DNA recognition and cutting, Martin and Christoph figured out that the system requires a second kind of RNA, this little molecule here shown in red, called the tracer, which creates a structure for binding to Cas9. So in the laboratory, it was essential to have both of these types of RNA molecules present with Cas9 for targeted recognition and cutting of DNA to work, and we quickly showed that that's true also in cells. Now, Martin uh, Jinek, uh, being a, you know, a terrific biochemist, was very interested in the kind of the minimal components of the system, and he was busily kind of figuring out what the essential parts of these RNA molecules might be, and he realized that you could actually link together the part of the RNA that provides the address label with the part of the RNA that provides the handle for Cas9 assembly. And this created what we called a single guide form of the RNA that in a single molecule could provide both the ability to bind to DNA and the ability to recruit this Cas9 protein for cleavage. And when we did this experiment and saw that these single guide RNAs could easily be altered on this end to recognize different places in a DNA sequence, whether that DNA molecule was a very short molecule tested in the test tube or whether it was an entire chromosome uh, of a cell, we realized that our work that had started as a curiosity-driven project to understand a bacterial immune system had the potential to go in a very exciting and very new direction. And that's because by introducing a targeted break to DNA, it could be possible to trigger genetic changes to be made to the DNA in the process of repairing that break. And that's because in uh, in many other labs uh, around the world, really over the past several decades, people had been studying the process of DNA repair, especially in human cells, where misrepair of DNA can lead to cancer and other problems. And so there's lots of interest in understanding how this works. And it was appreciated that in our cells and in plant cells and other kinds of uh, animals and, 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 and plants, when double-stranded breaks occur to the DNA, rather than leading to rapid degradation like happens in bacteria, instead the cells can recognize that break and fix it. And they re- repair it by either introducing a very small disruption to the DNA in the process of pasting those ends back together, or by integrating a new segment of genetic information if a template DNA molecule is available in the cell, something that is easy for, um, for scientists to introduce in a, a research setting. And so by doing this, you could actually, if you had a way to introduce a targeted break to a genome, you could actually carry out something that at the time was called genome engineering. You could literally change the DNA sequence at a particular place by inducing the cell to make that change in the process of repairing DNA. And I wanted to show you a a video that was created by a wonderful uh, uh, colleague and scientist at University of Utah for us, uh, Janet Owasa, that shows how this works when we put these molecules into human cells. So when we go into the cell, of course, the DNA in a human cell is inside the nucleus. It's packaged as chromatin, so it's wound around uh, histone proteins. And amazingly, the Cas9 enzyme can use its guide RNA 
to find a matching sequence of DNA in the genome. And when that match occurs, the protein is able to unwind the DNA. It forms a hybrid with the RNA, little helix inside the protein. And then the, the, the DNA is cleaved, and the broken ends handed off to other enzymes in the cell that can repair the break by, in this example, inserting a new segment of genetic information. So it's a very powerful tool. And amazingly, after we published this work in the summer of 2012, very quickly, labs around the world started to adopt this method for genome engineering, and quickly that word turned into DNA uh, genome editing because we all realized that with this technology, it became much easier now to change the sequence of DNA precisely and accurately, and it really became a democratizing tool that allowed labs to do experiments that in the past would have been prohibitive for various reasons, whether due to expense or time or just uh, technical difficulty. Now, suddenly, those kinds of experiments became a lot easier. And so just to, um, for those of you in the room that, that you know, if you're not uh, reading the scientific literature every day, just to give you a sense of what's happened over the past few years, you know, this technology just took off incredibly quickly. And I wanted to just show you an illustration. This is actually from the Elsevier uh, Journal uh, website, just showing the numbers of publications over the last few years with different technologies for genome editing. And so before there was CRISPR, there were tools for uh, altering genomes that were based on uh, having to engineer proteins that could cut DNA precisely. And these are shown in the, uh, these three examples here. And these, uh, you know, were adopted initially, but once the CRISPR technology became available, it really took over. And the reason is that it's, it's just a lot simpler and faster to be able to change a molecule that provides the address label for a single protein, Cas9, is the same in everybody's experiment, whether they're working with human cells or wheat cells or zebrafish or anything else, they just have to change the address label, this RNA molecule, something that is relatively trivial to do with molecular biology methods. And so for me, you know, as a biochemist and a structural biologist, this, you know, experience of doing this work and, and then sort of um, being part of this revolution, really, that's happening where we have a new technology that's incredibly enabling has been, you know, very exciting and also incredibly challenging. And I wanted to share with you just a few things that we've been working on in the lab and just very briefly tell you some of the questions that we're still asking in the laboratory and trying to understand the answers to. And then I really want to dive into where this is all going in terms of what's going to happen. How is this going to affect all of our lives in the future? And what do we, what do, we do about it? How do we think about it? And so to start with, you know, a little bit of the science that we're doing. So, you know, we've always been fascinated with how molecules work. And I still find that, you know, every morning when I wake up, that's usually the first thing on my mind is, you know, I'm thinking about experiments that I've been discussing with the members of my lab and our, co our collaborators and colleagues, and I'm wondering what are the results of those experiments. And one of the things that we've been, you know, puzzling over is really the understanding the mechanism by which this Cas9 enzyme is able to function as an RNA-guided protein. So think about it. This is an incredible molecule, right? Because it's a, it's a protein that has this little address label, and somehow, by a mechanism that is still being dissected, it's able to interact with the DNA in a cell so precisely that it finds a 20-letter 
sequence in the DNA out of all of the billions of base pairs in, uh, of, of DNA, three billion, for example, in the human genome. And it finds that 20-letter stretch, and most of the time it does it pretty accurately, and it makes a, a cut in the DNA. And so how does that work? And so we've been studying this using a variety of techniques, including X-ray crystallography, electron microscopy. Those are techniques that show us the structure of molecules and what they actually look like, as well as all sorts of ways of probing the behavior of these molecules, whether it's in the test tube in the lab or whether it's actually in living cells. And that work has showed that um, this is actually a 3D printed model of Cas9. It's based on a crystallographic structure that was actually solved by my former postdoc, Martin Jenek, who's now a professor at the University of Zurich. And what this shows you is the white uh, protein, which is the, um, the white part of the model here, Cas9, with its guide RNA, the orange molecule, that's the address label, holding on to a DNA molecule that is unwound inside the protein so that it can make this precise set of base pairs with the RNA. So there's a transient RNA-DNA helix that forms inside Cas9. And when that occurs, the protein has a sensor that now triggers cutting of the DNA. And we understand now a lot about how that works by the, a lot of, you know, and I wish I could uh, have several hours to tell you all of this, but, uh, but, you know, this is really all of the work that's been done over the last six years in our lab by a whole collection of um, undergraduates, graduate students, postdocs, and technicians who've been able to you know, sort of tease apart how this actually works. And I wanted to show you another, uh, this is just a uh, representation of a structure of a related enzyme called Cas12. It's also a, an RNA-guided DNA cleaving protein. It's a member of a related CRISPR-Cas system. And this shows you how this, again, this protein is structured so that it holds on to the orange uh, molecule, the guide RNA, and as the DNA traverses the protein, it unwinds inside the enzyme to allow access to each strand of that DNA double helix so that cutting can occur. Now, these proteins, amazingly, are able to open up the DNA duplex, but they do it without any external energy source. They somehow coax apart those DNA strands, and that's a fundamental question that we're still puzzling over. How does that work? Because it's critical for the mechanism of these enzymes that they are able to gain access to the DNA helix, and not only that, unwind the duplex so that it can be cut. And one of the things that's emerged from our research over the last few years is that these uh, types of proteins, and I'll show you this uh, example for Cas9, are enzymes that they're, they're uh, able to change their shape. They're sort of like shape shifters. And this is an example that shows a comparison of different crystallographic structures that we have of Cas9. And the animation starts with the protein alone morphing to the shape that it forms when it binds to the guiding RNA. And once that occurs, there's a channel in the protein that is available for binding to DNA. So that's a really big you know, rearrangement of the protein structure. And once DNA binds in this central channel, there's an additional rearrangement of the protein to accommodate that RNA-DNA helix. And then finally, this part of the enzyme right here, this yellow piece, swings into position so that it can actually cut the DNA. And we initially, this was initially a 
a model for how Cas9 might work, just sort of a construct in our minds for how it might work. But we've been able to test all of these steps using different chemical methods, and we now feel very confident that this model is correct. That this is really an enzyme that's designed to grab onto DNA, disrupt the helix, probably in part by changing the shape of the enzyme that pries apart those DNA strands, and then only when it's engaged with a correct matching sequence that matches that guiding RNA does the cleaver position itself to actually make a cut in the DNA. So it's really an amazing uh, little molecule. So I wanted to uh, talk now about, you know, what, what this kind of tool is enabling. And I'm going to focus on three different aspects of, of applications of genome editing. I want to talk a little bit about um, applications in public health, applications in agriculture, and then finally applications in biomedicine. Because one of the amazing things about genome editing, if you think about it, you know, every living thing that we know of on our planet uh, has, uh, has a nucleic acid that encodes the genetic information. And, and for cells, that's, that's DNA. So given a tool like this, it turns out that this is a, a technology that is enabling in many different areas of biology. And so people, of course, have been, you know, thinking about how you might use a tool that allows changes to be made to DNA precisely and accurately. How do you use that in ways that are going to solve real-world problems? And, um, and what's so interesting is that, you know, it, it's just, it, it's allowed incredibly creative and interesting things to be either done or to get into the pipeline. But it also raises, I think, some very profound challenges in terms of the societal implications of this work and um, ethical, uh, you know, the sort of ethical issues that are coming up, as well as um, issues of equity and um, how we think about a technology that's moving so quickly in the laboratory. And you saw with that uh, chart I showed you of publications. There's, I think, the last time I typed, you know, CRISPR-Cas9 into PubMed, which is our, you know, search, uh, sort of the library of medicine, I came up with close to 10,000 publications just in the last few years. So it just gives you a sense of how exponential the growth has been in the use of this tool. But that's moving forward much faster, I would say, than any of the, you know, grappling of, uh, with these kinds of challenges that we're doing. And so this is why it's so important to have people um, thinking about this and get it engaging in what it means to have a way to literally control um, the code of life and to control the evolution of, of organisms, including ourselves. So in, in, uh, in public health, so one of the things that, uh, that, that's happened is that, you know, people have appreciated that you could use uh, the CRISPR-Cas system in ways that, um, that will have a clinical impact but don't necessarily uh, involve uh, using genome editing directly in people. And this is an example here where scientists are using gene editing to alter the DNA of animals like pigs that are envisioned to be good organ donors for humans and using it in two ways. One is to remove endogenous viruses from the pig DNA that could otherwise potentially infect humans that received organs donated by these animals. And the other is to make the organs in these animals more human-like so they're less likely to induce an immune reaction. And that's actually work that's going on both in academic labs and also in uh, companies now. 
So that's an area where, you know, this is something that, I mean, a few years ago I wouldn't have ever imagined, uh, you know, something we were involved in having uh, that kind of effect. And yet this work is moving forward uh, really quite, quite quickly. And I think that most people would agree that this is, a, this is a, an exciting potential application of this that could solve a real problem, which is the scarcity of organs that are necessary for donations. And then another area of, of uh, interest in public health is an area where I would say there are both very interesting opportunities but also some real ethical challenges. And that's in an area that we call gene drives. And maybe some of you have seen this in the media. In fact, there was just a story recently on NPR about uh, gene drives in mosquitoes. And I just wanted to very briefly explain what a gene drive is. And it's basically a way of introducing a genetic trait very quickly through a population of organisms. And it requires an efficient way of integrating genetic information into the genomes of these organisms. And this is a diagram that um, is adapted from a, a, an article, recent article in Science News that just shows how this works in an insect population. So normal inheritance works like this, where we have uh, traits that are in each of the parents and they have progeny. And those traits are inherited in a, generally in a sort of a, what's called a Mendelian fashion. That a trait in this animal doesn't take over the population. It's simply inherited um, according to this lineage. But if we have a gene drive in place, and this is something that can be enabled with a gene editing technology like CRISPR-Cas9, now we have a way that if, if this animal has not only a particular genetic trait, but that trait is coupled to the gene editor, then every time it gets into an animal, uh, if it, it, it will tend to get into animals that don't have that genetic trait. And so you follow this through this population, and you can see that very quickly, virtually all of the organisms have this particular genetic trait. It's not, it, we're no longer relying on Mendelian inheritance. Why would this be useful? Well, uh, people envision that you could use such a technology to control the spread of mosquito-borne diseases by creating animals in the wild that are either um, unable to spread the disease or are sterile, for example, which might lead to eventually to extinction of the population if you took it to that extent. And, um, and so there's, I think, both incredible excitement about the potential for this, but also a growing recognition that this could have profound impacts in the environment that need to be evaluated. And we need to be very careful about uh, taking steps that might be difficult to reverse once they get unleashed. And so that's one of the kinds of, of, of challenges that a technology like gene editing is now bringing to the fore. Now, I wanted to also say, uh, speak a little bit about agriculture. So, um, you know, in agriculture, I, I personally think that this is probably the area where gene editing will have the widest global impact in the near term because everybody has to eat and there's lots of research being done to alter plant properties that will allow plants to resist drought, to resist disease, potentially to be more nutritious and to do that using gene editing so that genes can be very precisely altered without requiring years of breeding as well as all of the um, genetic variations that typically go along with, with traditional breeding approaches for plants. This is an example from um, a research lab at Cold Spring Harbor uh, Laboratory, Zach Lipman, who published a paper showing that you could use the CRISPR-Cas9 system to 
as essentially as a rheostat to dial up or down the numbers of fruits that are produced by plants, such as tomatoes. And you know, he's done a lot of work on this, showing that he's really um, impacting the genome at a place that is highly conserved across different kinds of plants. So you could start imagining being able to control crop production in many different kinds of crops using this sort of a strategy, which sounds uh, very exciting. And then there's uh, work that was done at uh, Penn State University by another academic research group that was able to use CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out one gene, a single gene, made a one gene disruption that creates a trait in these mushrooms that prevents them from turning brown when you cut them open. And, um, and so, you know, this was sort of a, a, sort of a, a novelty when they initially did this, but again, it's the idea is that it demonstrates how straightforward it now is, in, at least in some settings, agriculturally, to make these kinds of targeted changes to plants. And the big question is, or a big question, is um, what do, how, do we, how do we all feel about that? How do we feel about going to our local uh, farmer's market or, or grocery store and picking up some mushrooms that have been edited this way? Are people uh, going to accept that or, or resist that? And, um, and, and I've discovered that, you know, depending on the country that you live in, the answer is going to be different, at least from an environmental, uh, uh, governmental perspective, because in the United States, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has decided that any kind of gene editing that leads to genetic knockout, not introducing new genetic information, is not to be regulated, and it's not con considered a genetically modified organism because it doesn't contain any foreign DNA. But if we go over to Europe, uh, it's very different. In Europe, uh, the ruling has come down uh, in the last few months that organisms such as, as the mushroom would be considered a genetically modified organism, and those would be regulated very strictly or perhaps not even allowed on the market there. So, you know, we're at this very interesting moment where uh, countries are having to grapple with this, and it will affect global markets for uh, products that are produced from... Uh, you know, farm, everything from uh, home farmers to big commercial farming operations. And then finally, I just want to turn to um, biomedical applications, and this is actually a slide from some of our own work. So, you know, one of the amazing things about gene editing is that even labs like mine that are, you know, tr very firmly in the camp of, you know, working on purified molecules and thinking about mechanisms have been enabled to do things that we could have never imagined doing in the past. And this is actually an experiment done by um, a um, recently uh, uh, graduated or, or um, departed uh, postdoc, Brett Stahl, who was able to show that he could make modified forms of CRISPR-Cas9, this little molecule diagrammed here, and inject them into the brains of mice that, were, uh, that had been uh, uh, tagged with a gene that turns red when the DNA is edited precisely. And so that's a very nice marker that tells us when and where D uh, uh, cells in the brain have received a DNA edit. And you can see here that in this experiment, when these Cas9 molecules were injected in two places in the mouse brain, we got a fairly large volume of cells that received a precise DNA edit. And we're excited about this because we're actually now working with people at UCSF to ask whether we can use this strategy to treat neurodegenerative disease and also to deliver molecules into tumors that could be uh, beneficial for cancer patients. Something that, you know, I, a few years ago I wouldn't have imagined that I would be involved in uh, exciting work like that. 
And, um, and then there's also potential to do things that are outside of uh, directly delivering gene editing into, into patients that involve detection of disease-causing DNA. And this is using CRISPR-Cas molecules as diagnostics, something that several students in my lab pioneered, really, with their careful work, understanding the real, uh, some of the uh, sort of side functions of these Cas proteins, really, and then recognizing that, that those activities could be harnessed as diagnostics. So those uh, kinds of applications sound uh, like things that I think all of us would agree are, are, are worth moving forward and don't really have ethical challenges beyond any sort of the normal ones that we might think about for developing therapeutics. But what about uh, editing the human germline? And you know, this is an idea that really came up very, very early in the whole field of gene editing because people recognized that if you could make changes to what's called the germline, that means in embryos or eggs or sperm, that you, would, you could actually introduce genetic changes that would become part of an entire organism. And not only that, they become heritable, so they can be passed on to future generations. And this was actually, this um, picture was on the cover of The Economist a few years ago under the banner Editing Humanity. And they had a whole, you know, sort of article imagining what would happen if you could actually do this, right? And, um, and so just to explain this a little bit more clearly, I just want to point out for those of you that are not scientists that, uh, that we, we can really define fundamentally two kinds of genome editing. One is called somatic cell editing, and that means making changes to um, you know, say the brains of, of, of patients or any other cells or tissues in a particular organism that are not part of the germline. They don't get transmitted to future generations versus what's called germline editing, which uh, is, involves making heritable changes. And once those changes are introduced, it could be very difficult to, uh, you know, to unchange them, right? And so those really become then part of the whole lineage of that uh, organism and all of its um, uh, future progeny. And just to show you um, uh, sort of how this would work, so the idea is that you could take uh, a fertilized egg, and this is actually an example from our own Russell Vance, who's here, at, works here at Berkeley in immunology. So he was one of the early labs to adopt this for germline editing in mice. And this is an experiment in his lab where they took a, you see a pipette tip coming in from the left. It's holding on to a fertilized mouse egg still at the single cell stage, and you see a needle coming in from the right that's injecting the gene editing molecules. And they go into the cell, they edit the DNA, and then as the cell uh, divides and makes more cells and it forms an embryo, then all of those cells inherit that change to the DNA. And, um, and so back in, in 2015, really, and I guess it was even earlier than that, sort of 2014, I started talking with a number of my colleagues here at Berkeley about this, and I found myself uh, lying awake uh, many nights thinking about the potential for this technology that I'd been involved in developing being utilized in this fashion. And I started to feel very uncomfortable about it because it seemed to raise a lot of fundamental questions about not only who we are as human beings, but also, uh, you know, the things like eugenics and, um, you know, societal inequities, something we're talking a lot about now. And, and um, you know, who decides who would have the access or ability to use that kind of genome editing? And is it right to use it at all? And so with some encouragement from colleagues, we started through the Innovative Genomics Institute here 
a, we, we held a small meeting up in the Napa Valley in January of 2015 to discuss this question. And that led to a much larger meeting sponsored by the National Academies of Science in the US, the UK, and China to discuss this and ultimately resulted in a report that was released in now almost about two years ago, uh, shown here, about human genome editing and in particular human germline editing. What did it mean? Who should be able to use this? And what were the criteria for proceeding uh, if some uh, scientist wanted to use this uh, type of, you know, had this uh, idea for using this application in human embryos? And it, even then, it all seemed kind of, uh, you know, it sort of seemed a little bit science fiction-y to me. And, you know, I knew the potential was real, but it, it, I, I sort of maybe was a bit under the illusion that scientists around the world would respect the guidelines that were put forward by this report. But then, um, in, in, uh, in uh, around uh, the end of November of last year, I received a, uh, an, an email. Um, it was, I think, the day after Thanksgiving, uh, with the subject line, Babies Born. And the email was from this fellow, um, He Jiankui, who is a scientist in China who I had encountered on a few occasions. I didn't know him well. In fact, he'd visited uh, Berkeley a couple of times. And uh, he told me in a very terse email that he had been involved in a, um, a clinical study where they used CRISPR-Cas9 to make changes to the genome of babies who had actually been, been born. And uh, as, as, uh, as circumstance would have it, we were actually all on our way to Hong Kong for the second international meeting on human germline editing, and it was apparent to me that his intention was to announce his work at this conference. And that's exactly what happened, and I'm sure all of you, unless you've been um, you know, asleep for the past few months, you've probably seen uh, articles about this because it's been written about quite a lot. And, um, and it's really brought to the fore this question of using CRISPR-Cas9 or any other gene editing technology to alter the DNA of humans in a heritable fashion. And I just wanted to, just so that you are aware of what was actually done, and maybe we'll discuss it a little bit, I wanted to show you this picture, um, which is, uh, was actually from the Twitter feed of uh, a, a colleague of ours, Sean Ryder, at the University of Massachusetts, who did a really nice service to the scientific community of going in and analyzing very carefully the actual uh, claimed DNA edits that He Jiankui reported completing in these, in these uh twin girls that were, were born. And what, what Sean Ryder showed is that um, although the stated purpose of this application of germline editing in these girls was to remove a gene called CCR5 or disrupt this gene that's responsible for, um, that allows HIV virus to infect cells, so his stated purpose was to give these girls protection against future HIV infection, something that sounds reasonable. It turns out that the actual edits that were introduced into these girls are changes to the DNA that have actually never been seen in humans at, at, at a detailed level. They, these, these exact edits have never, these changes have never been observed in humans, and in fact, they've never been tested in animals. And so at the top is the um, unmodified sequence of the gene. This shows a naturally occurring deletion called delta 32 that has been observed in um, in a few people and was the tip-off that this is a gene encoding a receptor protein for HIV, 
But down here are the actual genetic changes that were created by Hu Jiankui in these twin girls. And what you can see is that these do not look like this, right? And so even if you don't know the, look at the details there, you can see that they're different. And so that means that what he did was to actually make changes to the DNA and then implant those resulting embryos so that they resulted in pregnancies and live births such that the resulting people, these young girls, have changes to their DNA that have never been tested. It's really a profound thing to think about. And I can tell you that when I was sitting in the audience at that meeting in Hong Kong, I literally had, you know, the hairs on my neck were standing up because it seemed so horrifying, really, what, what had been done. Um, and, you know, I think that we're, we're at a point now where uh, we have to think about how to move forward. And I wanted to put this up to point out that the World Health Organization recently announced that they have convened an international forum of scientists to really think hard about where we go from here, given that human germline editing is now a reality, and frankly, it appears not that difficult to have done, right? Because this Hu Jiankui is not an MD, for example, and he was able to find uh, various partners to help him do his work. We clearly, as a scientific community, need to be thinking about how to, you know, what's the next step here? And this forum is, is charged with putting in place some more, you know, detailed requirements, I would say, perhaps even regulations that would be necessary if anyone in the future wants to proceed down this path. And the national academies in the U.S. are doing the same thing. They're also in the process of putting together an international forum to look at this. There have also been calls for moratoria on this kind of application, and maybe we'll have a discussion about this a little bit, and I have views on this. And I'm just going to close by um, pointing out three things. First of all, we're now in an era where, you know, we have powerful editing uh, tools for changing DNA sequences precisely and accurately that are both advancing science at a pace that is really, really incredibly exciting, but also raises these profound questions that we really must grapple with as we move forward. Secondly, that, uh, as I just said, that, you know, to really uh, advance genome editing to the next level, we're going to have to understand better, I think, how it works and how to control its activities. And when I say control, I mean both in a chemical but also in a societal sense. And then um, we have to really think hard about what kinds of regulations should be in place that will support science and allow the science to advance as quickly as possible to solve real problems, but will also, at the same time, limit risk. And I'm going to um, just uh, stop there, thank uh, people that I've had the pleasure to work with. This is my uh, almost current group. Some of these folks have already left the lab. This was taken a few months ago. But um, wonderful students at every level that have been working uh, with me over the years. Great colleagues uh, here at Berkeley, both scientific colleagues and also Emmanuel uh, Charpentier, of course, but also colleagues who are helping us to think hard about these ethical challenges. And then finally, um, any uh, scientific laboratory is dependent on funding to do our work, and we are extremely uh, grateful for all of these organizations for supporting our work. Thanks a lot.
Um, we have microphones that will circulate in the audience, so um, uh, please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question and wait until um, the microphone gets to you. This gentleman right back here. So you talked a lot about uh, regulations that need to be done for the CRISPR-Cas9 system. Um, there are obviously, uh, th there have been two sides. One has been, you know, to sort of just uh, some people would like to say they just completely outlaw CRISPR uh, technology uh, and research, which, you know, would be pretty detrimental to the potential that the technology has. It would also be probably being effective. And then there's the other side who, uh, wants to completely, you know, let loose with uh, the, the technology and the research, which, um, again, would raise a lot of ethical dilemmas. Um, so what do you think is the, the, the sort of sweet spot in regulation-wise for, you know, um, a way to respectfully approach this technology ethically and morally? Yeah, that's the uh, so-called $65,000 question, right? That's, <laughs> you know, you put your finger on it. I think that's, that's the, the challenge. I, my personal view is that, you know, it's, not, it's probably not enough to just say, um, you know, as some people, like, you know, there was an article by Steven Pinker, for example, at one point in the Boston Globe that, that said, you know, bioethicists should get out of the way and scientists should just do whatever they want. And, you know, I think, I think that's, that's going too far. But I, I think that um, we need to be thoughtful about putting in place appropriate guidelines and, and frankly, I would say regulations that um, really establish a set of principles that are, you know, where there's some, uh, there's some price to be paid if you cross that line. And, and the challenge is always how to do that. And, of course, science is global now. It's very hard to imagine quite how we would regulate or, or maybe enforce regulations globally. But the good news is that there are a lot of smart, uh, dedicated people that are starting to really grapple with that challenge, including our own, um, you know, senator, um, uh, Dianne Feinstein, who is looking into this and contacted uh, us at the IGI recently about legislation that she's, um, or at least a, uh, um, a statement that she's considering putting forward for consideration in the Senate. So I think we have to be... Um, just very uh, thoughtful and, and um, thinking about how we can put in place a set of very clear requirements that might turn into regulations ultimately. Yes, in the back. Please wait for the, please wait for the microphone. Um, there were news articles that said that scientists are trying to bring back ex extinct animals such as the woolly mammoth uh, using the CRISPR technology. So I had a couple of questions. So what stage is that research at? And secondly, if that succeeds, then what would the pros and cons of that be? Well, I, yeah, so the de-extinction movement is, I think, what you're referring to. Um, and it sounds uh, exciting. I, I think it's probably more in the realm of science fiction right now, in my, in my opinion. Now, some of my colleagues like George Church, who's doing this work, might disagree. But I think the uh, likelihood of being able to actually bring back woolly mammoths is, is going to be challenging. And, and uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where we would, what the habitat would be for those animals, too. It's a bit hard to imagine quite where we're going to put them. But, um, but I think that, 
but you raise a great question. That is, so there, I've talked to other uh, colleagues who have maybe less um, grandiose plans for de-extinction, but nonetheless want to explore this. And so the, there are people that are thinking about, you know, could you bring back the carrier pigeon, for example, or could you, uh, you know, could you engineer birds to have properties that uh, are, you know, were extant, uh, you know, in, in animals that have now gone extinct. And, and so I think it's a, again, the way I think about it is what a wonderful tool for doing research and under, trying to understand the evolutionary relationships between organisms, but I don't think we're on the verge of Jurassic Park. Yes, here, um, please. Please, um, while you're waiting to get the microphone, please keep your hand up. It'll be a little bit easier to get the uh, uh, microphone to you. Thank you. Um, my name is Alex. Uh, thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, I, um, so I think there's definitely some cultural differences between different countries that um, are going to make regulation very challenging just because regulations in one country might not match regulations in another country, um, whether they're produced democratically or not. Uh, and so as an outcome, I think it's feasible that there's a scenario where uh, this technology is going to be used um, you know, to add a germline stem cells you know, for a long, you know, very quickly for, and for a while, somewhere where we might not uh, be able to control. And so, uh, you know, you being so, in, so involved in this technology, how do you, how do you think um, our government and, and our, our scientific culture is dealing with the potential outcome of that? Like, the repercussions of, like, assuming that it will happen and that it's, you know, it's already happening, um, what, are, what are some of the steps that our government is taking that you might know of that would actually be um, you know, deal with this in some way? Well, I'll just mention three things. I think um, hopefully everyone heard that question. It's really just about, you know, how do you, how do you think about regulation in a global, you know, in a, in a, uh, a global sort of culture of science? And, and uh, given that, you know, individual countries are going to be approaching this potentially quite differently. I think it, for me, it uh, comes down to, you know, starting with the community of scientists. I think that engaging that community to think together as a, you know, that's why I think having these international forums um, is so valuable, to put in place uh, what are seen as essential requirements for any use of, for example, human germline editing by folks in the future. And then using that as a basis for both uh, government regulations, but also, frankly, um, for the behavior of journal editors, let's say, you know, people who are involved in making decisions about what kinds of science gets, gets published. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, should, like in this case of Ho Jiankui, should, you know, he wrote a couple of scientific articles about his work that have not yet appeared in the peer-reviewed literature. Uh, should they be published or should they not be published? You know, and there's a debate on both sides. But I think that um, I, I think the, you know, the, the uh, scholarly journals will play a big role in uh, disseminating information and also deciding, you know, what kind of work is worthy of being published in those, in those sorts of forums. And then I guess the third piece is really um, doing a lot more engagement of people that are outside of the scientific community. And that's, that's a really, it's a big challenge because, um, you know, you, you, people are, I think, you know, everybody's busy and, you know, CRISPR sounds maybe scary and maybe, you know, it sounds complicated. And, and so, but I think, I think it's really key that we have ways of communicating. And I, I've been 
experimenting at the IGI, at the Innovative Genomics Institute, we now have an artist-in-residence program. We have artists that have just arrived that are going to be helping to work with scientists to illustrate their work and explain it in a, you know, more maybe accessible fashion. And uh, we do a lot of um, interaction with screenwriters and, and uh, science fiction writers and people like that who are probably going to be doing much more to disseminate information than any of us individual scientists will be able to do. So I think working outside of our traditional comfort zones is also going to be key. Thank you. Yes, here, please. I'm not a member of the scientific community. I'm a political scientist. So uh, I'm interested in public policy, and you talked about balancing regulation and limiting risk, and that's pretty straightforward. Who's working on that? The, the, the concept of unintended consequences, let's take those two little girls with the intent of, of eliminating HIV uh, uh, vulnerability. Um, what's going on with, with, with uh, grappling with unintended consequences of this work? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. The unintended consequences are, are potentially profound. And, you know, so I, unfortunately right now I only have more, I have more questions than answers about that. I think all of us at the meeting in Hong Kong and, and since then have been wondering what's being done to follow up on the health of those girls, to monitor their uh, progression as they start to grow up. Um, how do we try to understand uh, as you said, sort of the unintended consequences of the genetic changes that they've received and how those genes that were potentially apparently disrupted might be affecting other aspects of their health beyond susceptibility to HIV infection. And then, you know, more broadly, how do we think about going forward? You know, I can tell you that there's, there's tremendous interest in human germline editing. I, you might be surprised, or maybe you wouldn't be, but I'm contacted almost daily by people that have questions about it, even people that want to do it and are trying to figure out how and where and when they can get access to it. So uh, it's not going to go away. And so I think it, the broader question is how do we approach unintended consequences of this type of, of, of genome editing in the future? And there's no easy answer there. I don't, I'm not quite sure how you do experiments to figure that out, right? So it's, it's a tough question. Yes, please, right over here. Um, yes. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so you mentioned earlier um, that CRISPR is mostly very accurate, and how does it fail? Like, does failing mean it's sticking that section of DNA somewhere it shouldn't, or it just can't find the piece of DNA it's trying to untangle and it proverbially gives up? Right, yeah, thank you for that question, because it's really important. So it, um, it fails, or it, or it induces um, off what we call off-target changes to DNA when it engages on a place in the genome that doesn't maybe perfectly match the guide RNA sequence. And that does happen with some frequency, and it depends, you know, the frequency of that really turns out to depend greatly on the way the tool, these molecules are actually introduced into cells, the amount of the editor that's in the cell, the time that it, it stays active in the cell, and all of those sorts of things. And um, so 
it's a you know it's been a, um, a very active area of research over the last few years to investigate off-target editing and what you know what happened how does it work and how do we prevent it and there have been a lot of advances um, I, I would say in the technology that make me think that today that's not really a bottleneck going forward even for clinical use it's not to say that we ignore it but you know we have to pay attention to uh, the accuracy of the editor, but there are better and better ways of both monitoring that as well as modified forms of these proteins that are, you know, even more accurate. I think the other way to think about your question is, is what about, and this kind of gets back to this earlier question about unintended consequences, what about edits that are happening as you, as, as we intend, but they lead to a genetic alteration that has an undesired or unintended outcome, right? So you've altered the gene that you intended to alter, but it has a, uh, an unpredictable or undesired outcome. And that's a lot harder to, to figure out how to test and control for. Thank you. Yes, over here in the, toward the front. Please keep your hand up. Yeah. Yes. All right. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, I'm from a startup community. Um, so I'd like to hear your view on how you see the like responsibility and the role of the startups and the venture capital in the ecosystem. Um, I know that there are so many like money coming to gene editing. Are you seeing like a positive trend, or like do you see some risk, uh, like startup or like venture capital coming to this space? I had a bit of difficulty hearing the question. Did you were you able to? I didn't catch it either. Can you just repeat? Sorry. Hi. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Um, so, yeah, I have a question about the uh, how you see the uh, load and the responsibility of startup and also venture capitals. Uh, there are many money now coming, coming into that space, so I want to see how you see it's positive or like negative trend. You're, you're touching on a very important point, and that is that, the, and I didn't, I didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but there's a tremendous interest in the biotech and investor communities in gene editing as a technology that will enable all sorts of commercial opportunities. And um, that's, on the one hand, very exciting, and I think will lead to important advances in, especially in sort of the, the outcomes of this tool. But at the same time, it does raise challenges, especially for things like conflicts of interest, right? Because people like me and many of my colleagues are involved in some of those companies. And so you could imagine conflicts arising between the research that we're doing and the you know, business opportunities or, or models of those companies. So I think it's just something that we have to be very you know, cognizant of and paying very close attention to. It starts with transparency about you know, what you know, in, engagements we all have. But I also think that I want to point out that I think there's very exciting ways of advancing technology that involve partnering between academics and companies. And I've, you know, this is something I really didn't know anything about until a few years ago, right? I had, my work had never had any commercial, um, you know, implications whatsoever in the past. But I've had to, you know, kind of learn about this. And um, again, I've benefited from a lot of, uh, experts here at, at Cal um, who have been able to talk to about you know different aspects of these kinds of partnerships, but I think that you know there are times when there is research being done in academic labs that has potential commercially, but 
is going in a direction that really couldn't be explored by an academic lab because we don't have the resources and frankly we maybe don't have the desire or the expertise to take the work in, an, in, in that kind of direction. So by partnering with companies, I think we can do things together that neither party would be able to do alone. So I think the challenge is to look for those opportunities and always maintaining um, you know, the you know, transparency necessary to try to avoid conflicts. So I'd like to go to the back over here to the quadrant. Um, my question was about what you discussed earlier. Um, you showed that there were mutations, the um, edits that Yi Zhongkui made to the genome were human edits that had never before been seen in the human population. Um, and I was sort of wondering how you deal with the consequences of that where, I mean, obviously they've been edited now, but these are human beings and they could live, you know, 30, 50, 100 years and obviously the genome isn't static and there's often mutations. And so I was wondering, Number one, how you deal with mutations in a genome that is different than what is in the normal population. And then also, if those um, children decide to have their own children, you now have a lineage of genetically modified humans that we've introduced into the population, like how you deal with that going forward and how that affects sort of the whole human population. Right. Well, so, um, so to take the second question first, you know, I, I think it's important to appreciate that, you know, uh, introducing a trait like that into the whole human population would take a really long time, right? So I, I think that's, that's not going to happen. But, um, but you're right that, you know, those children now could pass this trait on to their kids and it becomes part of their family lineage. So going forward, it, it will be essential to, I think, to monitor these girls' health as they mature and try to figure out, you know, how, as you, in your, in your first question, how stable are these edits and what impact does that genetic, um, you know, change to their DNA have on their health, not only in terms of their susceptibility to infection, because it's a change that could affect the function of their immune cells, but also might affect other aspects of their health. So there's, you know, there's some publications now and some papers out very recently that suggest that the gene that was edited in these girls, in addition to affecting their susceptibility to HIV infection, might also affect other aspects of um, neural function, you know, and uh, might in fact be, you know, uh, in some way beneficial to their health. And so that has to be, that, that will have to be assessed going forward. And um, I think that would have to be done, in my opinion, by a, you know, a third party, you know, group external to, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be appropriate for that to be uh, monitored by, for the monitoring to be done by the scientists that actually did the work, right? It would need to be done by a, a third party. Now, w will that happen? I, it's hard to say. Thank you. Um, I'd like to touch on eugenics for a minute. Um, and, and given the really dark history in this state in particular, do you envision the government taking a harsh stance early on, or do you envision it being left open to the marketplace? How do you kind of envision that aspect of the technology moving forward? Well, I guess I imagine that it's likely to move forward analogous to the way that in vitro fertilization has unfolded. So I'm old enough to remember when, you know, my parents would sit at the dinner table at night and debate 
the morality of of test tube babies, you know, and talk about was it right for people to, you know, be conceived in a test tube, and, you know, it seemed really weird. But then over time, you know, that we had family friends who benefited from IVF and many other people as well, and Louise Brown grew up, and she seemed to be fine. And so, you know, over time, in a, in a very kind of grassroots way almost, people came to accept that technology. And I, I almost wonder if we'll see a similar thing with human germline editing, that it'll perhaps start to be used in some IVF clinics. I hope under, um, you know, much more stringent uh, regulatory guidelines than has happened in this first instance. And if the, you know, if those um, uses result in perceived benefits to kids and to families, then uh, you could imagine that that will start to be more widely adopted. Now, does that mean that we're entering into a, an era of eugenics? I don't really see that likely to be happening. I think that um, it's probably going to be more, you know, sporadically utilized, and, and I, I would hope that initial uses are limited to um, real medical need rather than what we might consider to be enhancements. Um, how close are we to kind of like curing single gene diseases like Huntington's that you were talking about and how like um, how would you translate that from like in the lab to human like and also what are the difficulties both like in the policy side and like the scientific community since like healthcare is very like profit driven so I think your question is about how you said how close are we to being able to correct a single gene uh, mutation is that was that your your question uh, we're already there, you know. I mean, it's amazing, but, but you know, we're already there. So um, I can give you just a couple of fast examples. I mean, right now in, the, in, in animals, you know, in, in, uh, in mice, it's been possible to introduce genetic changes that correct uh, a, um, a disease of the liver. Uh, that's been done in, in a couple of cases. Um, Eric Olson at the University of Texas recently published data showing that in a dog model of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you could actually introduce genetic changes that, um, that alleviated the phenotype of that disease, which is it's a crippling uh, muscular degenerative disorder, um, which, you know, was really a profound sort of, you know, he showed these results at a scientific conference a few months back, and I think everybody in the room was, you know, just kind of stunned, right? But, you know, how do we go from that where we are now with that kind of uh, application in animals and certainly in all kinds of, you know, stem cells and cells in the laboratory, how do we go from that to actually having a treatment that will um, be available and useful for curing patients? And, and this is where, you know, the expertise of, of many folks in the room goes far beyond what, what I know, but, you know, it's, it's certainly going to involve things like, you know, we have to figure out how to deliver gene editing molecules into cells. That's sort of a scientific and technical challenge. But then there's the challenge of, um, you know, the cost of, of that kind of a treatment and, you know, how affordable will that be? Who pays for it? Is this going to be covered by insurance and how do we decide that? And then who, um, who gets access to it, right? If these are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for example, patients that are afflicted with sickle cell disease, I think we're on the verge of having a, a strategy that will actually be curative for sickle cell disease, that's tremendous. But, you know, there's 100,000 people in the U.S. alone that are afflicted, and then there's many, many people in sub-Saharan Africa that are afflicted. And so how do we ensure that there's sort of an equitable distribution of a technology like that and, a, a, you know, potentially a cure? These are profound questions, and I think they have to be 
uh, tackled, and there's no, again, there's sort of no easy answers. So, uh, so I had a question about uh, food regulation. So you just discussed how uh, basically the removal of genes from food, uh, food genomes uh, is not regulated by the U.S. FDA. Uh, why did they make that judgment? And do you think that the removal of a certain gene can have unintended consequences that they aren't accounting for? Right. So my understanding of that decision by the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture is that um, they basically look at uh, a um, you know genetic changes that are made to a plant, and they decided that if there's no introduction of foreign DNA, that effectively you could argue that that genetic knockout is something that could happen naturally. Right. It could you know you could have plant breeders that could you know knock out a gene. It might take a really long time, but but uh, you know, they could get there through natural, there could be a natural process towards that genetic knockout. Whereas uh, a knock-in, where, that, where a new sort of foreign gene, let's say, that's not been in that plant before is introduced, that's uh, much harder to imagine how that could happen naturally. So I think that was sort of the basis of making that decision. Um, and, uh, and you might wonder, well, how come in Europe the decision went a different direction? And I think it's because in Europe they define genetic modification according to just the technology manipulation itself, right? If a plant was manipulated with some kind of a tool, like a gene editing tool, even if you ended up with exactly the same plant at the end of the experiment, it would still be called genetically modified because it went through that uh, process of being exposed to the technology. Does that, does that make sense? So, so, you know, it's just different ways of defining what we consider genetic modification. But as you can see, these are all, in a way, very subjective, you know, kinds of decisions. And I think they're really going to come down, in many cases, to what, you know, all of us, as, as the consumers of those potential products, really want. You know, do people want to have access to those uh, plant products that are, you know, that are the product of uh, genetic manipulation or not. And my personal feeling there is that, you know, if you think about how traditional plant breeding works, it involves, you know, mutagenizing plants, and you get lots of random changes to DNA, and then you simply select for plants that have desired traits. Who knows what other genetic changes are coming along for the ride? And as you know, it results in things like roses that don't smell nice anymore because, you know, the, those genes have been lost in the process of removing thorns, you know, things like that. So I think, I think we have to just, you know, again, be very thoughtful about what kind of regulation we might advocate for given um, the realities of how the technology works. This gentleman here on the aisle. Hi, good evening. My name is Aidan Hill. I'm a former candidate for Berkeley City Council representing this area. So like many of the constituents here, I have concerns about the dual-use applicability as well as the bioweaponry available with CRISPR technology. But I'm curious, has there been any trials of CRISPR technology with 5G technology? And what are the circumstances of cellular, cellular radiation using this technology to um, enhance the genomic structure? Thank you. Uh, okay, I didn't, didn't entirely understand the details of your question, but I think you're, you're generally asking about dual use of, of genome editing technology, which basically means um, the potential for a technology to be used both for 
um, the public good, but also for, for harm. And yeah, my, you know, my, I've had a lot of discussions about this with, with people. Uh, we've, we've had um, a number of visits from uh, government agencies that have come to Berkeley and talked with me and, and other uh, folks, as well as our colleagues around the country about, about this question. And I, I feel that gene editing is, you know, it's sort of no different than other technologies that have the potential to do uh, good and bad, you know, and, and, and uh, they have to be they have to be monitored carefully for sure. I think one of the challenges with gene editing, and hopefully you, you, you took this away from my talk, is that it's widely available. It's really easy for people to get a hold of it, right? It's not something you can lock away in a box. And even if we wanted to uh, get rid of it, and I think we don't, but, you know, even if we wanted to say, well, we're, you know, we're not going to let scientists use this anymore for certain kinds of things, it's going to be very, very hard to actually do that. So I think, I think more effective is going to be really just being very transparent about uses that are contemplated and getting uh, the scientific community to really engage in thinking about how to, how to uh, work together to um, encourage a culture of responsible use. It's not a perfect solution, but I think it's, it's a good start. Rexel, could you please um, hand the microphone to this gentleman straight across from you, down, the, down that row? Yep. Thank you. Thank you, and, and uh, Dr. Dudna, thank you so much for all your work. My question is this. If you know the gene that is a cause of a particular uh, disease, in specific context happens to be retinal degenerative diseases, and you're able to edit out the defective part of the gene, where does the healthy gene that you're going to replace come from, if that's an intelligent question? And then secondly, am I correct that, that the CRISPR has two aspects, precluding the transfer or the inheritance of a gene that's defective by editing it out, but also the ability to get the new gene, the corrected gene, to express itself so you might have some immediate effect in that person. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, those are both really good, great questions. And the first question is about, you know, where, so I showed this example of a piece of DNA being inserted into a genome in the process of repairing a break introduced by this CRISPR-Cas9 protein. Where does that DNA come from? It's a great question. And it um, basically, it comes from, there's two sources. One is from the cell itself. So you probably know that, you know, there are two alleles, two copies of every gene in a diploid cell. And so um, you could imagine a scenario where one of those alleles is, um, is you know, cut by CRISPR-Cas9, especially if it has a uh, a, a change in the sequence that allows um, specific recognition, and then you could have repair by the other allele. So that's one possibility, and that's actually been demonstrated in animals to be a pathway for DNA repair. In, uh, but in, in many cases, especially if we were going to use this kind of strategy clinically, scientists can actually introduce that DNA repair template into cells externally. So they can introduce it on a virus, for example, or a, a just a, some other kind of piece of DNA that gets introduced into cells where it provides the template for DNA repair. So that's how that's done. And then um, your other question was, remind me, the second question? Uh, yes, okay, right. 
Right, right. And this is a, also a great question because it really gets at this distinction between making heritable changes in the germline where those changes just become part of the individual and can be passed on to the future uh, uh, children of that individual. But um, if we do the editing in somatic cells, then that means we're do making changes to DNA in a single individual and maybe just in one tissue of that individual, right? So for you could imagine someday being able to treat muscular dystrophy in patients that have that disease by just treating their muscle cells if you had a way to deliver gene editing into just those cells. And then you could actually, as was done in this dog model, you could actually turn on production of the normal protein that's missing in those people and in, in, the, in, the, in these dogs and restore uh, muscle function. Thank you, Rexel. To the young lady with her hand up there, please. I was just raising my hand for my friend whose arms got tired. All right. That sounds like a good deal. <laughs> Friendship at its best. <laughs> so I was kind of wondering, like, one, what kind of future do you see for CRISPR-Cas9 in, like, just over-the-counter sort of cough and cold medicine? And um, I was wondering, like, what would happen if you tried to, like, defend against mutations from gene editing by using more gene editing to put the genes back how they originally were? Yeah. These are, th thank you. These are, both of those, again, are, are really great questions. So how soon are we going to see over-the-counter gene editing? And I have two answers to that. One is that we already have that today if we're not talking about editing people, right? Because you can actually, scientists can go to a nonprofit organization called AdGene, and at, for a very inexpensive, uh, very low cost, they can get access to these gene editing molecules, and they can start doing experiments in their lab. So in that sense, it sort of is over the counter. Um, how soon will that be, you know, go, you're, you're going to the store and you have a, uh, headache and you need to buy CRISPR-Cas9? No, not, not very soon <laughs> for, for lots of reasons, and it's probably a good thing. Um, and then your, your second question was, remind me? Shout it out. <laughs> Would it be possible to, like, counteract mutations from, like, gene editing with more gene editing? Yeah. So... Um, I think, you know, the way I would answer that is that what, I think what you're, you're asking is once you change the DNA in a cell, can you change it back? And, you know, can you, what do you, what do, you do? And, um, and so there's a lots of interest in this right now in the scientific community. There's lots of people that are thinking about that question, actually. How do we, how do we think about gene edits? And um, what if you wanted to turn off a gene editor that, that you'd put into cells and allow, you know, either... Um, I don't know about reversing those genetic changes. That might be harder, but um, but certainly not not allowing the gene editor to go on indefinitely, sort of modifying uh, DNA and cells. And so um, there's a really interesting biological phenomenon. It turns out that in nature, as I kind of talked about in the beginning of my talk, so these CRISPR enzymes, uh, these proteins, arose as a bacterial adaptive immune system. They prevent viral infection in, in bugs. Well, you can imagine the viruses don't like that very much, and so they fight back. 
and they actually make little proteins that inhibit the CRISPR enzymes. So they have inhibitors, and we call these anti-CRISPRs. And so there's kind of this natural kind of war going on between CRISPR proteins and then these anti-CRISPRs. And there's lots of research happening right now to understand how those work, but also how you could actually use them in a protective way in cells to prevent undesirable genetic changes. So thank you. I, unfortunately, the time has raced by, and um, we, do, we, have no more, we have time for just one more question. This person in the front row. Thank you so much. Um, I was wondering, uh, earlier you mentioned that, uh, you know, pigs are being genetically engineered to um, produce organs for organ donation and mosquitoes are being um, genetically altered to either become uh, extinct or become sterile. Um, uh, in terms of uh, spreading disease to humans, and I was just wondering what are your thoughts on like the implications of um, alter <clears throat> altering um, the environment to um, aid in the extension of human life expectancy? Well, I think in both uh, you know those those examples, and especially in the case of a gene drive that could have big implications environmentally that could be hard to predict initially, I think we have to proceed with extreme caution. So I, I really favor uh, careful, you know, evaluation under very defined, you know, laboratory settings before proceeding further. And right now, there are a number of studies going on in research labs to test especially gene drives. And, um, and then there are some very, um, you know, some controlled studies that are planned in isolated environmental settings just to kind of get a sense of how effective these will really be in a natural population. That's something that really hasn't been explored yet. But I think the key is proceeding carefully and um, with a lot of uh, um, you know, thought behind each, each step that's taken. Please join me in thanking Professor Downa.